Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right On Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Katie Blunt, sitting in for Ebony Lumumba, and Right On Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Today, I'm very excited that our guest is Lisa Howarth. Lisa was born and raised in Washington, D.C., where her new novel, Summerlings, is set in 1959. She is the author of the 2014 novel, Flying Shoes, and she has written for the Oxford American and Garden and Gun. She taught art history at the University of Mississippi, receiving the McDowell Fellowship in 2007. In Oxford in 1979, she and her husband Richard founded the legendary Square Books, which will celebrate its 40th anniversary in September of this year. Full disclosure, I also grew up in Washington, D.C. I was a student of Lisa's at the University of Mississippi. I babysat her wonderful children, and my husband worked at Square Books, which is where we met. So we go way back, and if this were a typical conversation between Lisa and me, we would be having a drink. (laughs) Lisa, tell us about Summerlings. Uh, Thanks for having me here, Katie. It's so fun to talk to you, and I do wish we had some toddies lined up here, but later on. Um, And I do want to say that I'm so proud of Katie. She was actually a student of mine when she came here as a Southern Studies student, and I like to tell people that Katie taught me everything I know. (laughs) Oh, no. Look out. It's pretty much true. Anyway, okay, Summerlings. Um, Summerlings is a small book, a a small story that I have had in my head for a while. I've wanted to write about Washington and the kind of um, unusual neighborhood I grew up in. And um, this particular story is I centered around three little boys, John, Max, and Ivan, and uh, who are close friends. They're eight and nine years old. And um, as boys do, they get up to a lot of craziness in the summer um, in their neighborhood. And some things are sweet and some things are not so sweet and some things are uh, delightful and some are tragic. Anyway, the story is basically them trying to negotiate this neighborhood that they live in, which was much like mine and the neighborhood where Katie grew up, too, uh, which was um, populated by a real mix of characters, Um, CIA operatives, FBI guys, perhaps uh, Ukrainian um, diplomats, Latin American diplomats, Austrian Jews who'd escaped Anschluss, living next door to a Nazi sympathizer, Dutch general, and uh, a whole assortment of um, interesting people. And these boys are very confused about um, their lives. The neighborhood, even though it's more than a decade after World War II, there's still a World War II hangover in the hood, and it creates boundaries, which for the boys are disappointing because they can't get into somebody's swimming pool or they can't get a ride in somebody's little Messerschmitt car or whatever. And they hatch some plans to reunite the neighborhood, um, which they call the beaver plan, to make things nicer, make everybody be nicer. Um, 
people are very suspicious and wary about each other. It's the Cold War. And what you did during World War II and where you were sort of um, sets a lot of of these boundaries. So anyway, they want to, um, using (laughs) what they believe to be a sort of martial plan based on what they've read in their weekly readers, they hatch a plan to reunite the neighborhood. That's just one thing that happens to them. And another thing that happens to the entire city is a huge spider infestation, which lots of people have asked me if it really occurred. Um, I'm going to say, no, it didn't. I made it up, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it didn't happen at some point. But these boys, um, it's a huge um, problem and super annoying and frightening to all the adults in Washington who are – it creates all kinds of problems for them. But these boys are in hog heaven because they decide they're going to collect spiders and they decide they're going to find the scariest, most venomous, um, evil spiders or scorpions that they can find and um, use them for their own nefarious purposes. So that's pretty much how the... um, the plots play out. There are lots of little side projects and things that go on, um, love affairs, neighborhood secrets that the boys also try to negotiate. Everything they hear from the adults, they have no idea if it's true. And um, they're happy to believe some things like maybe the insect infestation is the Russians. Um, and they just kind of pick and choose what they want about the truth. Yeah. Uh I love that you you mentioned that the um, the neighborhood was close to the neighborhood I grew up in, and one thing I really love about this book is even though I grew up a little bit later, um, a lot later, this the, <laughs> the, the descriptions of everything, the kids, the natural landscape, uh, what they did, how they spent their day, are so evocative of my childhood, including the connections with sort of official Washington. I mean, I grew up totally free in the summers, running around with a, a bunch of kids, uh, the Romanos, the Chens, the Obolenskis, the Plotzes. Um, and it was, a, it was a, in some ways, a very typical childhood. Could have been in Mississippi, but in, in ways that you explore in this book, uh, very unique to that place and time. So do you mind reading a little bit to give us a sense? No, um, happy to. Um, let's see. I think I'll just... Read a little bit from the beginning so you can get a sense of, um, of, of what Katie's just talking about, the setting of the place and um, uh, what it looked like, what it felt like. Uh, this is not quite the beginning. Well, maybe I will start at the beginning. For us boys, the summer of 1959 was as cataclysmic as a meteor, Washington's historic plague, our wild neighborhood party, and my first acquaintance with death. These are the things I remember so vividly from that bright season, along with the accompanying feelings of fear, revelation, and wonder. I was eight, the time in life when everything is still new, and some things are perceived clearly, but others are murky and not understood. That is to say, those things in the realm of adults. What my friends and I knew was a grab bag of information overheard, along with information we made up and told one another and accepted as fact. Not really so different from the grown-up world, I suppose. 
but we existed in a smaller world of our own daunting challenges. People with gods and monsters, sometimes they were the same. It was a scorchingly hot summer. Maybe the record high temperatures had something to do with our plague. But Washington summers are always fairly hot. The city is built on a swamp, after all. What were L'Enfant and Banneker thinking? Paris, I suppose. Wide diagonal boulevards, circles, obelisks. Bronze and granite heroes, built but built on marshy land where cattle once grazed. The city grew like a swamp, too. Our neighborhood, just over the district line near Chevy Chase Circle on Connecticut Avenue, was lushly green in summer, even deep into August. Connors Lane, originally just a farm road, was jungly and mossy. Virginia creeper and ivy grew on houses. Grass grew from cracks in the sidewalk and street. Few people had perfectly tended yards or exotic nursery specimens. What grew was what was used to growing, boxwoods, dogwoods, oaks, holly and yew, maples and mulberries, and of course, the iconic cherry trees, although they weren't indigenous and had been given to the city of Washington by the Japanese government in 1912. My mother told us that when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, an angry mob set the cherry trees at the Japanese embassy on fire. But cherries thrived all over the city, their delicate pink blossoms so very lovely in spring, giving our stolid, stony city a lighter feel, like a a frill of petticoat peeking from under a nun's habit. In our old neighborhood, steps and walks crumbled and mold grew on walls. We didn't worry about things like mold back then. We worried about polio and radioactivity. The big oaks created a dense canopy on our lane, a tunnel where we boys foraged and loitered and ran amok like the little beasts that we were. The light under the canopy gave everything a dark, watery green cast in summer, a green not like any of the greens in my new box of 64 Crayolas. I love that you read that part because uh, I think one of the one of the best um, aspects of this book, and this was true of your earlier novel too, uh, which was set in Oxford, but, but back to this one, um, it is so evocative of the natural landscape in D.C. And uh, I'm here to tell you, Mississippi, you do not have a monopoly on hot, steamy, swampy places. <laughs> that is D.C. And when I was growing up, we didn't have air conditioning, and not right. everybody did, and <laughs> we felt it. Um, so one one of the best things about this book is that is that landscape and everything that grows in that landscape and there's you know there's bugs uh there's mold as Lisa said growing on the <laughs> sidewalks uh when John's sister comes back from camp she describes the other girls as having smelled like mildew uh the the one of the neighbor families is the wormy chappaquas who gave them worms they kill gnats by slamming their granddad's world book encyclopedia on them and then the pages are stuck together with gnat bodies. Uh, John has ringworm, and when his dad's mad at him and swats him across the head, John wishes that he had given his dad the ringworm. <laughs> so the spider infestation just comes in the context of this, you know, steamy, moist, buggy place. Um, talk a little bit about the spider infestation and... I had assumed that you not only made up the infestation, but made up the vinegaroon. And oh, then, yeah. Because that's classic Lisa Howard nonsense. But then I looked it up, <laughs> and it's real. Well, vinegaroons are real. But 
they weren't as nasty as I needed them to be. <laughs> so I had to make up the pirate, the pirate right. vinegaroon. I looked long and hard for a pirate vinegaroon <laughs> and um, not so. And the pirate vinegaroon is able to do things that he, it, they, vinegaroons are of the whip scorpion family. And they are able to <laughs> do, um, they can sting with their stingers like a regular scorpion. But they also have fangs like um other spiders, other arachnids, and secrete a, a serious venom that can um, maybe kill you. <laughs> the voice, which is the main thing that attracts, what attracts them, right? Yeah, <laughs> these boys to that, although uh, it, it's an interesting um, roundabout story about how they get close to one, and I'm not going to spoil that by telling you what yeah, that you is. Yeah, you got to read it. You got to read it for that story and many, many others. But the the story of the boys and the vinegaroon is is uh, you've got to read it. Can't miss it. Uh, one thing that I know about you have always known to be true um, about you, and and really comes out in this book is that you love kids and you've spent a lot of time with them. You pay close attention to them. Uh, you you pick up on the weird and funny ways their minds work and the connections they make when they're trying to figure the world out based on absolutely no knowledge. Um, there's a great uh, scene where the uh, the adults are talking about Mussolini, and <laughs> they uh, they say well, somebody says that they need to inspect his brain and find out what was wrong with him. So from that, the kids go to. Grown-ups collect brains. They have Mussolini's brain in a jar. Maybe he had an earwig. You have to clean your ears or you'll get an earwig. And are earwigs the same as screwworms? Screwworms eat your flesh. So that's the way that conversation goes. Um, <laughs> and that sort of, I think, captures you know what these kids are doing in this book, trying to figure out a larger world that they just don't understand. Yeah, and of course, um, I mean, there's nothing more fun than writing about kids or reading about kids. I mean, and just hanging around with kids. I mean, sometimes, of course, you want to kill them, as mm -hmm. you and I mm -hmm. know really mm -hmm. well. And Katie's daughter, Suzanne, is sitting here with us, and she survived to be <laughs> a student at Georgetown University. <laughs> and I don't want to kill her at the moment. <laughs> but I do, I do really love kids, and they're just so fascinating. They got no filters, you know, or they have just enough filters to screw things up. And... Um, they're not they're basically interested in their own truths about things and but they're also there's something so amazing to me about children because they're so resilient they have no control over their wor worlds and um, in this case a couple of these boys John and Ivan in particular have sort of tragically dysfunctional families but um, and there's nothing they can do about it that but um, learn to go with the flow and to deal with it. And um, I think that's remarkable about children. Of course, what what what's their recourse? They have no other choice. But the ways that they decide to um, negotiate the world and deal with um, especially the unpleasantness in their lives and the kind of crap that makes no sense to them that's imposed on them by adults, like 
why can't we stay out all night riding our bikes around and, you know, just ridiculous stuff that, that we were able to do back then, which kids can't. We could still sneak and do it, but I don't think kids get away with much these days. And that was another thing about kids that I wanted to talk about was I have two grandkids now and live in New York City. And um, the difference in the lives of children now, especially kids in urban situations and our lives growing up. I mean, Katie, your generation may be the last one that really had the kind yeah, of freedom. We, we ran pretty loose. You just went out in the morning. Maybe you'd come home and make yourself a potato chip sandwich for lunch, and then you'd disappear again. You all, almost always had to be back for dinner, and then you'd be gone again right. in kick, the summer. Kick the can, capture yeah. the flag, just and, run around. And nobody paid any attention to what we were doing or yes. where we were, really. It was uh, it was sort of amazing, and maybe, in a way, it was a healthier way for kids to grow up. Except for the potato chip sandwiches. Except for the potato chip sandwiches, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it is. It's similar and different. And one of the ways it's different is uh, there's one adult. There are a lot of loving adults um, who who may be you know slightly oblivious, but they love these children, and. Um, the the children's favorite is uh, Elena, who is um, uh, Ivan's aunt. Yes, yeah, and um, they, there are many things they love about Elena. She pulls dollar bills out of the sleeves of her caftan and gives them gives the, the kids the money for uh, good humor. Um, but she also often, even in the day, has a cocktail with her, and she gives the kids sips of her cocktails and puffs on her cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> That's just something that no kid now could possibly imagine. But, you know, this was the 1950s. Exactly. Now, she's quite exotic and gorgeous, and she's um, a very nurturing, sweet yes. person, she one of the them. few adults in their lives who pays attention to them and truly is interested in their lives, unlike everybody else that's re really responsible for them. So. Yeah, right. Um, one thing that, that uh, of course, there have been some great reviews of this book. Um, and one worth reading is uh, by Jacob Apple in the New York Journal of Books, and, and he picks up on what some of the others uh, pick up on, too. He sa says, heart, what this endearing and enchanting novel exudes. And it's true. This this book has uh, so much heart, um, and and so much love in it. And uh, that's that's, I think the what makes it absolutely irresistible to a reader. Um, it is uh, it is joyful. Uh, several of the reviewers talk about it as joyful. It is very true to the lives of these children. It is light and funny, but it is also moving and sad. Um, and it's a it's a wonderful read, and I just loved it and can't recommend it enough. Um, but one thing I love about the Mississippi Book Festival podcast is that um, it's not just about books the authors have written, but it's about uh, fun things that people don't necessarily generally hear about, which is, what do you like to read? Asking a bookseller that I know. is kind of like asking which is your favorite of your children. You know, it's really <laughs> hard. And we, you know, are constantly reading to try to keep up mostly with what comes out. So you don't always get to read what you want yeah, to read. Right. You have to read uh, – you want to re – you, you 
you should read the books of the people who are coming, right. which is always fun. And, um, you know, you try to stay ahead. So the books that usually I've been reading are, um, they're not out yet, a lot of them. The new ones, that, is, new ones are you thinking of? Or, yeah. I, mean, I like reading. I love yeah. fiction, but fiction's a crapshoot in a lot of yes. ways. You can get onto a fiction book that you have high expectations for and... It turns you off in one way or another, and I don't feel that way about. We've talked about this yeah. before about nonfiction. If you read a nonfiction book, it may suck stylistically or but in whatever way, but you're going to learn some stuff. Yeah, right. You know, you're going to come away with um, some kind of enlightenment. And right. um, so I, I really have gotten recently. So I really prefer biographies and yeah, me um, too. history. And that's what I've mostly been reading recently. Although there's some, there are some great novels. I could tell you some. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, with, with nonfiction, I mean, I think a lot of why I read is I like to be immersed in a different world for a while and, and get yeah. out of my own head. And with nonfiction, you're going to get in that world whether the person's a, you know, a brilliant writer or just a decent writer. And um, uh, that can be interesting. So what do you hate to read? What do you tell the people at the bookstore you will not read, no matter uh, how many times they ask you? I probably would not read um, beach books, mm -hmm. if you know what I'm saying. Um, or okay, but I hope you don't consider Fleischman is in Trouble a beach book, because <laughs> that book is awesome, and you should read it. There are plenty of beach books or books that are being lumped into that <laughs> Sand pile or whatever, sand castle. Um, I, I really don't like light reading, which is ironic because some people will consider Summerlings to be light reading, but it's it's got some very dark it's, moments. It's but both. Um, I, I really prefer to get something uh, emotional or um, intellectual out of what of whatever I'm taking the time to read, and which is not at all to say that. I begrudge <laughs> right. people having beach books. We make a hell of a lot of money off of beach <laughs> books for one thing. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying. I just, uh, um, you know, I'm kind of a, a little bit of a snob about books because I can be. I own a bookstore. Yeah. You know? yeah. So. It's the only kind of snob you are. Thank you, I And mean, that is literally true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm looking at the uh, cut, by the way. Take your time. I'm looking at the questions that they put in front of you. Do you want to talk about what's next? Huh? What's next? Oh, if you want, whatever you want me to talk okay. about. All right. Oh, yeah, All right. sure. Let's talk about some more pop culture crap first and then. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. All right. I know uh, you and I both follow somewhat pop culture um, music and, and not just books, but magazines and and movies and and uh, stupid things that are fun. Uh, so what are you, what are you watching, listening to, so forth these days? I know it occurred to me. And I was thinking about this interview that you and I. Another good reason for the two of us to be doing this is because we're both basically eight-year-old boys. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that. <laughs> I mean, we've always had a big fascination with pop culture, even if it's not something that we love particularly. We're fascinated right. with the yeah. 
with it existing and why it's out there and all of that. Now, what was the question? What are you <laughs> like? What are you watching on TV? Oh, Any oh, movies, yeah. music? Yeah, yeah. Oh man, we just gossip. Saw, gossip. No, let's leave that one alone. <laughs> um, just saw. Uh, once Upon a Time in Hollywood the other mm-hmm. night, which, of course, 1969, that's the year I graduated from high school. And also, the same month, I happened to make the foolish mistake of moving to California just in time for Manson. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I love that film, though. I mean, at first it was like, wow, this is so screwy and wacky and it's even over the top for Tarantino. But it started to really come together, and of course, I, just, I think he's really brilliant. And uh, and it's got this wonderful cheesy soundtrack of every crappy L.A. pop song from <laughs> "Young Girls Are Going to the Canyon" yeah. by the you know it was just all the obvious stuff. And DiCaprio and um, what's his name, fabulous, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> blanking on. Susanna, the new Tarantino movie. This has to be edited out. Yeah. But um, Although, Brad really, Pitt. Brad Pitt. Jesus. It shouldn't be Brad because Pitt. it's very true to a conversation that we would have. It is true. It's, you know, it's Saturday afternoon at the nursing home sometimes <laughs> with me and Katie. But, but no, the, the acting in it is really good and it's really fun and it, a very surprising kind of ending. I was kind of dreading it, but it, I'm, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um all right, let me jump in. Back to the Mansons. Do I remember correctly that Richard gave you the book Helter Skelter <laughs> as a wedding present? He did. Our first, I think it's yeah. what, your paper anniversary? Yeah. Oh, was, okay, your first anniversary. And that and that you read it, but there was a part, of, a part in it, maybe a picture or a passage that so scared you that you had to cover it up. It didn't just scare me. It scared Richard, too. We're reading it. We took a little yellow sticky note, and we had to stick it over the photo of the guy in the Manson family named Zero. We thought we thought he was... We thought he was dead, but I don't think that Vincent Bugliosi ever said if he was dead in the photo or yeah. not, but it, it was really scary. And... <laughs> I don't know. That that's such a great book. And then of course the Ed Sanders, the family. I mean there's yeah. yeah. And I've got an original copy of Life magazine with Charlie on the front. I mean, you know, the pop culture it's a little I'm a little over the top with it, I guess. Well, but. I feel like now I've given the public uh, uh, just a true, uh, a true snapshot of exactly, Lisa Howorth, who exactly. she is. Um all right. A question that you probably uh, hate, but that everybody's going to be curious about. What's next for you? Um, that's, that's a good question. Um, as uh, the late, great hill country bluesman R.L. Burnside said, I done got old. <laughs> I mean, my first book came out when I was 63, and this one, I'm 68. That is an inspiration, too. I know, but I mean, the decline in vocabulary <laughs> and remembering you stuff You let us is, be the judge of that. Okay, whatever. Well, maybe that's why I wrote about children, because I knew the vocabulary <laughs> would, have, would just be like moron, doo-doo. But. Yeah, but. <laughs> no, but it's, um, I would like to, I would like to write some more stuff. I've got a lot of stories. Stories, and I'm thinking about collecting those up. But um, 
the word is publishers are not crazy about story collections, but um, I'm thinking about that. And put them together and call it a novel. There you go. Yeah, brilliant. Bingo. I've I've also thought about a '60s novel, but I swear to God, the '60s were so insane. Yeah, I. I'm not sure I could pull it off the yeah. way it needs to be pulled off. If there, anyone can, you can. Maybe, but there there have been some books that I was very disappointed in set in the 60s in the past few years by people who weren't there, and they kind of didn't yeah. quite get yeah. it. They, you know, they're good for other reasons, but I would really like to do that. And actually, I think Bobby Ann Mason told me she was doing a, a 60s good. novel, which... You know, never, she, could, she could do it. Never get tired of reading about the 60s. Yeah. Well. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lisa. This was a fun conversation, at least for the two of us. Um, <laughs> be sure to visit your local bookstore to purchase Lisa's books, uh, including her first book, Flying Shoes, <laughs> Saturday Afternoon at the Nursing Home. Um, Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks.